Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. Paul War is unfortunately on the road with the Labour Party today, so I'm glad to say I'm joined by Ned Simons. Hello. Yeah, stuck with me. Yeah. Stand in. Welcome return to the podcast. Yeah, it's been ages. Yeah, good to have you back, Ned. And we've also got the former Labour special advisor and Evening Standard columnist, Aisha Hazarika. Hello. Hello. Great honour to be here. <laughs> Glad to have you on. Well, we were hoping to get Anand Menon, long-term friend of the podcast, but he's currently stuck in an endless queue in India House, which is something that uh, I have experienced before. It's unlikely to end any time soon. <laughs> so we'll crack on. Brexit <laughs> might get done before he actually finishes that queue. <laughs> well, quite possibly. Um, well, talking of that, um, quite incredible. This week, Boris Johnson has got through two days of a Donald Trump visit without the president opening his big mouth and derailing the Tory election campaign. Trump did, however, find the time to have a row with Canadian PM Justin Trudeau and then went home in a sulk. Let's have a listen to Trump on his absolutely best behaviour. I'll stay out of the election. Uh, you know that I was a fan of Brexit. I called it the day before. I was opening up Turnberry. The day before Brexit, you were there. Many of you were there. I mean, I recognize that many of you were there. They asked me whether or not Brexit would happen. I said yes, and everybody smiled and they laughed. And I said, yes, it's going to happen. In my opinion, it was just my opinion. The next day they had the election, and I was right. But uh, I stay out of it. Uh, I think Boris is very capable, and I think he'll do a good job. Do you think that Jerry Corbyn needs to be more denouncing I know nothing about the gentleman. Uh, really, Jeremy Corbyn, know nothing about. Um, Ned, I was speaking to a Tory aide this week who said the size of relief at the party headquarters when Trump went home could be heard in space. Uh, yeah, that's probably inaccurate. They must be absolutely delighted. I think, you know, he was the most calm I think he's ever been. You know, he still caused some trouble, but there wasn't the mayhem I think people thought was inevitable. And Labour must be a bit disappointed, I'd imagine, because I think this close to the election... You know, you've got two things to maybe change the, the polls a bit. One might have been Trump's visit and the other perhaps the debate on Friday. But Trump not really allowing them to hammer home their NHS message might have been a bit of a letdown for them, I reckon. I love the fact that um, he was like, you know, when you tell a small child like not to do something, he had this like <laughs> studied <laughs> level of concentration <laughs> on his face the whole time. Like, don't say that you love Boris Johnson. Don't say. And of course, I love the fact he's like, I'm not going to get involved, and then blurted out about Brexit and Boris, like yeah. the two most politically charged things. And also, I love the kind of fake 
sort of you know cold body language between Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. I mean, they they were so cold with each other. It looked like you know when two people are clearly having an affair and they're sort of trying to like <laughs> avoid each other. Apparently, like, yeah. everyone's like, yeah, they're definitely get, they're getting it on. Basically, it just was so good that they managed, Boris managed to avoid um, being pictured next to him, apart from the one handshake they had to do. <laughs> and even in the press conference, he didn't mention Donald Trump's name. Yes, yeah. yeah, just. What's the thinking behind that? That, that seems an, a deliberate strategy from Johnson not to even mention his name. His advisors have clearly told him that. What, what's oh, that about? I, th- I think that was just all part of the kind of charade, pretending that these men had never met each other before. <laughs> and it was like, ah, oh, Mr. Johnson, oh, Mr. Mr. Trump, how so nice to meet you. I mean, it was just so clearly the whole thing was like, we must not have them looking like they're in a, a, a bromance because the, the, and by the way, that will all change like after the election if it is a, if it is a Tory yeah. majority, you know what I mean? It I will... wonder how long Trump can hold on though, like still could be a tweet or something before polling day, he might be watching Fox in the morning and they talk about it and he has to have a pop at Corbyn, you know, still time for I love the fact that he just like pretended to not know who Jeremy Corbyn was. <laughs> um, this is only like a few weeks after we went on LBC with Nigel Farage going oh my god this man is like the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity and he's like corporate Jeremy I know it's not ringing any bells I have no idea who this man is and Prince Andrew of course <laughs> yeah. our poor war decided to ask Boris about this and uh, he, he chose not to answer well, the, I thought the it was quite good that um, Joe Biden's now done a video in the US election which features Trudeau and Boris and everyone making fun of Trump so in a weird way Boris has now intervened in the American election <laughs> so wonder, like... oh that was an absolute Absolutely brilliant moment. And for anybody that's been watching The Crown, it was like, oh my God, season 10 is going to be amazing. And also what is so brilliant is that like Princess Anne was at the heart of all of that. And she's like an absolute heroine in the um, the latest episode of a series of The Crown. So I was like, go Princess Anne, this is so good. You're causing all this trouble. And I just love the fact that they, but even Boris was still actually being really in good behaviour because they were all slagging him off and he was trying not to laugh. He, he didn't really join in. He was obviously like so scared of saying anything about, about Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, just on a serious point, Aisha, do you think Labour could have made more of this? I know Donald Trump was on his best behaviour and it was, you know, and it went well for the Tories, but do you think there was, there was anything more Labour could do to make capital out of this? I think it was quite hard. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's, it was briefed out that Corbyn was going to try and stage some moment at the mm. dinner, like some sort of citizen's arrest at the <laughs> urinal or something like that. <laughs> but thankfully, the palace um, watchers were pretty smart and they kept the two men well apart. I think it was actually quite hard for Labour because, you know, I think it's difficult. Look, we're all, if 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 Trump had come out and said, I really like Boris Johnson... I don't know how bad that would have actually been for that core Conservative vote and the core Brexit vote that they're trying to sort of suck in to the Conservatives. Because I think there's a lot of people, I mean, I don't like the guy, but I'm a sort of liberal metropolitan elite sickle. Mm. But there are like a lot of people out there that do actually think this guy's all right. Mm. So I actually don't know what Labour could have done. I don't think in an endorsement for Boris Johnson would, I mean, yes, all the momentum people and everyone who kind of hates uh, Boris Johnson would have been like, oh, but I think a lot of people would have been like, yeah, this is going to help us get Brexit done. I wonder how many people as well, despite not liking Donald Trump um, or not liking Boris Johnson, might still think, yes, but if we are going to leave the EU, at least we've got a president who likes our prime minister. So it might, in theory, mean we've got some kind of lifeboat um, from the exit of the EU. Even if you don't like the two men, I can imagine some people thinking, yeah, but it is still good that the US president is a fan of the prime minister. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that even though, you know, there's a there's a lot of kind of contempt for for Donald Trump, there's a lot of people who still hold the office of President of the United States in, in high regard. And you're right, they still think that relationship is important strategically from a military point of view, from a business point of view, from a political point of view, and just from a kind of an emotional point of view in terms of our culture as having a lot of synergy. Um, so... I think that, uh, I, I, you know, I was really worried about his, his visit over here and is it going to be like lobbing in a sort of hand grenade to an already really febrile situation. But I think our politics is so divided now. Everyone has really kind of, is so entrenched in their camps. I don't think it, even if he had said something, it probably wouldn't have made that much of a difference. The only thing that I think would have possibly been interesting is if he'd really done a massive, like, slagging off of Jeremy Corbyn. If he had really done that, it would have been interesting to see if that could have, like, made Jeremy Corbyn more popular. Yeah, interesting. And it almost seems like Labour's whole election strategy to hammer this message about NHS Brexit, Trump uh, and the NHS for sale has been geared towards this moment and then it's just not really happened yeah i mean that's i mean there's i think the 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 Labour party have actually done quite well just purely from a strategic point of view of of landing an attack and a message which has definitely cut through to people we've been talking about it for like quite a number of days like about a week now we've been talking about this and yes there's loads of you know people saying oh it's it's not on the table and this that the next thing you know it's belie- I mean, I think it's completely plausible that if we were going to get into serious uh, trade negotiations, which we probably will do, I can understand this being on the table, um, not just for the NHS in terms of its bricks and mortars, um, but data, you know, like the, the data of, of the users of the NHS is, is going to be incredibly attractive to a, you know, a lot of different sort of um, companies, not just in America, by the way, all over the world. But... Uh, I think the I think the Labour Party will be quite pleased by this attack line. I, mean, I was talking about it with some old New Labour strategists from back in the day, and even they conceded that they would have been quite proud of it because the the kind of thinking behind a good attack like like uh, a sort of stunt like that is you know you've got the redacted sort of documents and you do the press conference around it, you get cut through, but the success is whether people are still talking about it. You know, even sort of up until yesterday, all the phone-in shows were still doing phone-ins on the NHS. Mm. That's quite a result. Yeah, just a quick word for Justin Trudeau, who's went from hero to zero with his blackface pictures and seems to have gone very quickly back to hero again uh, after being filmed laughing at Donald Trump this yeah, week. Yeah, it's like, I, think, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but internationally, I think people appear to have forgotten about that, haven't yeah. they? I think the way to absolve your sins of being a bit of a racist is just to really slag off Donald Trump publicly. <laughs> <laughs> that is how you basically wipe the record clean. I used to be a racist, but he's a racist now. Therefore, yeah. I was a bit racist, but now I've slagged off the biggest racist on the planet, so it's all right. <laughs> well, talking of Labour, after a small narrowing of the Tory lead, Labour's poll rating appears to be stabilising. Many in Westminster are now viewing Friday's TV debate as the last chance saloon for Jeremy Corbyn to turn the tide in this election campaign and stop the Tories getting a majority. In the meantime, though, he's ended up getting embroiled in a ridiculous row about the Queen's Christmas message. Let's have a listen. Do you sit down to watch the Queen's speech, Mr Corbyn? It's on in the morning, usually we have it on some of the time. It's not on in the morning, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, that's when everybody watches it. Well... 
Our Christmas is sometimes... You don't watch it, do you, Mr Corbyn? Lots, ..is lots to do. I enjoy the presence of my family and friends around on Christmas, obviously, like everybody else does, and I also visit a homeless shelter. Ned, does anyone care about whether Corbyn <laughs> watches the Queen on Christmas I Day? I don't know. I mean, it's really silly, isn't it? I thought it was a very good question, and I think the fact it's a big story is a bit kind of weird but what I did think was interesting in a weird serious point about it is I kind of feel it was odd that he didn't just say no I don't watch it and I wonder if the Jeremy Corbyn of 2017 or 2016 would have just said I don't watch it and I don't know if that shows some wider story about um, the change in him or how they're trying to pursue this campaign but I did think that was odd. I totally agree. I think this is such a non-story. So many people don't watch the mm. the Queen's Christmas um, message. I did love that Angela Rayner was like, he probably watches it on catch up. And I was like, he probably doesn't. Well, I, I also liked Angela Rayner, likely leadership contender, then said, of course I watch it. And both our kids <laughs> are named after kings. I was like, okay, Angela. All right, Angela. <laughs> Okay, like, he's not even resigned yet. She Come said on. she sometimes watches it on catch-up, though, after lunch. So Maybe she watches it three times because she, like, loves it so much because I'm such a royalist. Um, but I do think that's right. I, th- I thought it was interesting that he wasn't just straight and just say, look, this is not my bag. I'm a massive Republican. Mm. This just isn't my, my thing. And I thought, mate, I suppose the kind of, you know, I was sort of thinking, why is that? Is it because he's now more media savvy? Is it also because he's trying to reach out to those kind of more traditional Labour leave voters that are older and they do love the Queen. But I was thinking that's quite a reach. But I just couldn't I couldn't think why I just wasn't honest. It's something about authenticity we talk about a lot in politics. And that seemed inauthentic from him. And his big selling point, he's claimed and his supporters say, is that he's authentic. And actually, to go back to the big NHS reveal where he waved the two documents around, I was talking to, let's say, a more Corbynista Labour staffer who wasn't really a fan of that because they said it seemed not authentically Jeremy Corbyn and it seemed actually a more kind of new labour tactic. Well, this is why, so, that's really interesting because my, my former new labour strategy friends were like, oh, it was brilliantly executed because <laughs> it was proper new labour in its style. Peter Mandelson would have been like, oh, that's very good. Mm. And we've seen other aspects of this as well, haven't we? The triangulation on Brexit and also he seemed overprepared for the Andrew Neil interview and that kind of went badly for him as a result, it seemed to me. Yeah, I think this is the great irony about the the, the Corbyn project. And I've heard this from a lot of people who are, you know, still fans of his and they were fans right from the beginning. Two things um, they've noticed in terms of similarities between the sort of Labour past that they're trying to escape from. One is this triangulation, which was really held up as being terrible. And, you know, triangulation was like the devil incarnate of political purity. You should have a position. You should know what you stand for. You should pick a side and sort of fight it out. Yet on the biggest issue of the day, we're like on the one hand, on the other. You know, we've triangulated to the point where even Tony Blair would have blushed at this point. And secondly, it was that um, the leadership and the leader's office was meant to be this, you know, very, very flat structure, like literally across all the the members. And it was meant to have a very kind of open door sort of style to it. There was meant to be no command and control, no sort of hierarchy of powerful advisors behind the scene, like the Alistair Campbells or the Peter Mandelsons. And yet what has actually been recreated is a model which is even more strident and strict than than what went before. And the argument for that, when they kind of first took over the party, was, well, you know, we're like a cabal might be the wrong word, but, you know, the party wasn't on their side. But now that the Corbyn project does sort of own the institutions of the Labour Party, 
it, it but the, the, that kind of command and control bit hasn't gone away. They've kept that as well. Yeah. Yeah, Aisha, can I ask you about the debate on Friday? If you were advising Corbyn, what would you, what would, what strategy? He really needs a breakthrough moment. What what strategy should he pursue on Friday? Well, this really is the last chance to to try and kind of um, change things materially. I have thought that the last few debates, and the last one, um, the, the the one where he and Boris Johnson went up against each other, I think they both played within their comfort zones. They were very much focused on not making any gaffes, um, pumping out their sort of key messages to their home crowd. But I was also very conscious about the fact they didn't really attack each other. They didn't really try and land a, a glove on each other. And I think that I think Corbyn should actually take a bit of a risk and go for Boris Johnson on his character, on his credibility, on his lack of ability to to tell the truth. Um, you know, I think they are really important things to, to sort of try and frame. I think he will be tempted to just stick on the NHS. Yes, of course, he's going to have to get do a, a bit of that. He also has to be really prepared for the massive attack he is going to get from Boris Johnson and indeed the moderator on anti-Semitism. Um, and it's not good enough to just say, well, what about Islamophobia on mm. your side? I think he's going to have to have a, a, a better answer to that. Um, on the In the Andrew Neil interview, you know, I think he was actually quite well prepared for it, but he sort of let himself down by just not being able to say, I'm really sorry for what's going on. And it's not in the past. It's still obviously clearly going on now. And when you've been preparing some of your old bosses for debates how does the process work do you take the whole day do you take a few days and what are kind of the key bits of advice that you give that maybe we wouldn't know about you know apart from repeating your key lines god it took up so much time i mean when we were um preparing ed we started um preparing ed obviously it was um it was different then because we knew when the election was was sort of coming so we started sort of um our prep really really early and we we had weekends away where we had this thing called debate camp (laughs) (laughs) it was and we flew over all these americans so we would go to these like mad places in the middle of nowhere like these derby and chester and all these places and then like all these random american men would like suddenly show up and it was david axelrod was there (laughs) in chester yeah loads of people called larry and stan and all these guys called larry and stan and um We had, like, people who were sort of, uh, you know, kind of body language experts and things like that. So we really put a shift in, in terms of preparing for those things. But it was important because not only were they prepping you for the debates, you've got so many media appearances when you get into the cut and thrust of a election campaign. It's kind of quite good to be match fit on all of these things. But I think probably where we went wrong was that we we over prepared and I think there is a balance of doing enough preparation but also allowing your principal to still be in the moment and have some room for spontaneity you don't want to sort of ring out every opportunity to kind of try and have a bit of an original spin or a take um, in the moment and I think we agonized a lot about you know all, we tried to prep for every single attack line that we were going to get, which is, I mean, that's that's good due diligence. But you also have to train. You have to sort of send the message to the to the politician that they have to ha- they have to retain the ability 
to think on their feet. They can't just outsource everything. You're not an actor sort of learning your lines on something. You have to have the ability to sort of take that incredibly high-pressure, you know, judgment call in the moment if you get a kind of curveball question or if the audience is reacting a certain way. Um, you know, you have to be able to kind of improvise. Did you ever play any, any of the other leaders in the debate? Oh, yeah, the debate? I did. I did. Who have you been? So because there, there weren't that many women well, in yes. the room, let's be quite honest, um, I got the chance to play, obviously, Nicola Sturgeon, because I'm Scottish, which was amazing. Can I just say <laughs> to any women or men listening, if you really want to feel powerful and really like, if you want to ask for a pay rise, pretend to be Nicola Sturgeon <laughs> before you go in and the Barnet formula will be yours in your own life. I loved being Nicola. I remember Alistair Campbell's like, my God, you're really good at being Nicola Sturgeon. And actually, I met her once and she was like, I hear you do a really good Nicola Sturgeon. <laughs> I was like, I do. Um, so, and I played Leanne Wood as well, um, which was really fun because she just says Wales a lot, which is great. <laughs> and then on Nedley Beanie, that was Nedley Beanie until I had Brian Fide. But it was really funny because we then actually got, we had to get, we had to, so we, we flew in all these men from America. We got, we had to fly, we had to bus in women from around the country. <laughs> bus in women, um, so Kezia Dugdale came down right. from Scotland so she played Nicola Sturgeon as well to give me a break we unionised <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon so we got like, enough breaks and stuff and then Kerry McCarthy came and played um, I think she played Leanne Wood um, but also at one point we sort of ran out of women and this random guy from Ed's office a very lovely man called Mark Steers who was some Oxford Don in like political philosophy he had to play Leanne Wood <laughs> and he got so into playing Leanne Wood he actually made this speech about Wales and it moved us all to tears Ed was like oh god honestly Mark that was so moving like, I was just like god I feel really bad for the Welsh is it hard to take it seriously? Because it sounds like a right laugh. It was like sometimes we would like literally be pissing ourselves, and Ed would get really cross with us all. And then um, my uh, my friend and colleague and co-author um, of the book I wrote, Punch and Judy Politics, Tom Hamilton, he played um, David Cameron. Um, for a bit as well Alistair Campbell played um, David Cameron a few times as well but he was like so harsh on Ed we had to like say don't do that anymore <laughs> we can't just totally destroy Ed's confidence before he goes in to these debates and I think the person who played Nigel Farage it was such a joke because we always used to joke about how right wing he was because he was like the head of policy and he was always saying no one spending and that was Torsten <laughs> Bell <laughs> that's a great bit of uh, Westminster gods <laughs> Uh, well, this had been billed as a four-way election battle, but the Lib Dems and Brexit Party appear to be gradually fading out of sight. Four Brexit Party MEPs have just quit to back the Tories, while Lib Dem leader Joe Swinton has been forced onto the defensive. Let's have a listen. So you're proposing to scrap the so-called bedroom tax. Yes. Who voted nine times to introduce the bedroom tax? Liberal Democrats in government, uh, including myself. That would be you? Yes. You're Which I have previously said... And I'm happy to say again, was wrong. And I'm you... sorry about that. And it was one of the things that we did get wrong. Ned, you've been following the Lib Dem campaign closely. What's gone wrong? Well, it's gone wrong, I think, by the expectations they set for themselves. So straight out of the gate, they were saying we're going to we can win 100 MPs or hundreds of MPs rather. That Joe Swinson was saying I could be prime minister. I understand the tactic, and it was deliberate. Is the Lib Dems think that people won't vote for them? unless they think they can win. So you make them believe they can win and they'll vote for you and it might come true. I think one problem is that people just didn't believe them 
because also Lib Dems and Joe Swinson clearly didn't believe it themselves. And people can see through that. So then they pivoted on the day of their manifesto to just saying, you know, we're the best party to stop a Tory majority, which I think is a perfectly reasonable claim they can make. It's believable. It's realistic. Um, they do still think they can do that in some seats. I think they're very focused on you know, St Albans and uh, Richmond Park. They're, they're not, it might be close, but they do think they might be able to oust Dominic Raab and Eshron Walton. Yeah, I think he probably will, st- will stick it out, but they've got a chance there. I think if from the start they'd said, look, we want to stop Brexit, and a way to, the way to do that is you vote for us in these Tory marginals, unite behind us Remainers, we can do that. People will have believed them, they could have picked up some seats, and they could have painted it as a success at the end of the day. Even now, I think, if they do manage to do that, which is questionable, it will be seen as a failure. And Swinson's campaign, unfortunately, I think, will be seen as a failure because of that. Yeah, they're in a bit of a tailspin, aren't they, Aisha? Do you think Swinson's got long to go as leader? I don't know. If I were home, I think Chuka and <laughs> be like, well, well, hello. But then is he going to go in the sea? I think well, all those defectors, yeah. I wouldn't be confident of any of them getting maybe Luciana, yeah. but I'm not sure if Chuka and Sam yeah, no, are going to uh, win. Uh, well, I completely agree with, with what Ned has said. I think the biggest problem for, I mean, Joe Swinson went into this election campaign. It kind of should have been her moment to shine, really. And um, there were so many people who were so sympathetic and wanted the Liberal Democrats to do well. But I think you're absolutely right. It just didn't pass the smell test when she stood up and was like, I'm going to be your next prime minister. It's a bit like saying, I'm going to win the next series of America's Next Top Model. <laughs> <laughs> Don't need to laugh that much. It was just like, come on. But if I just feel like if particularly as well, like because the big thing that made her attractive was that she was not Corbyn and she was not Boris Johnson, two people who, you know, there's a lot of bluster, spin, misinformation, all this kind of thing. And she should have set herself apart by being different. She should have defined herself against them, saying, look, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not going to be the prime minister, but I could be the deputy prime minister and I could be the person who decides which two out of these two, which one's going to be prime minister and I could be the restraining force. And I know that, yes, scarred by the sort of coalition, but I think where we are now, people are so worried about either leader having unfettered power um, with the majority the idea of somebody kind of reining them in is actually quite an attractive prospect right now I just think they they gamed it badly and I think as well I don't know who has been advising her or I don't know if she came to this decision herself I think as well she had her big USP you know being a, a young woman um, not a kind of macho politician yet has sort of run quite a muscular kind of thing like with the boxing gloves and being so like there's so much hyperbole around uh, around her campaign I, I felt it was not her being her authentic self I felt like someone's told you to go in and be really really macho to sort of try and compete with these two men and it just doesn't it's jarring it's not working it's not it's not coming across as being comfortable I didn't think the revoke article 50 position was that awful in the beginning. I thought it was quite clever because it was a very clear dividing line against the Labour Party. But that coupled with the I'm going to be 
um, prime minister and king of the world just 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 hasn't hasn't worked. Yeah, I mean, I was speaking to her yesterday, and she was making an interesting point. As you said, she doesn't want to support Boris or Corbyn, and she was saying, well, you know, after an election. Um, it's usually the case that if a leader takes their party backwards or seems to have done badly, they resign immediately. And I think there is a relative chance that it might end up being her is the one that has to go, which I think, you know, is, is it wrong to say it would be unfair? But she hasn't been needed for that long. She literally hasn't even got all her team in place. There's some people that she was saying she would hire, but they're still on there kind, kind of uh, working their last jobs out before she, they could join the team. Um, and it does seem to be quite weird if she's the one that ends up having to go. I, I don't think they'd want to get rid of her, but in, in that in the aftermath of the election result, you know, things will happen quite fast, don't they? Uh, yeah, and I also think that she just, I mean, I understand that, you know, the coalition stuff was, was very kind of bruising on her, but I, in my view, I think she was so anti-Labour. I get that she doesn't like Corbyn. I understand, of course, about all the anti-Semitism stuff, particularly with Luciana coming over to the party. Of course, I get that. But to sort of slam the doors down so heavily against anything to do with the Labour Party, I felt was all... Because that was that was the the fit that everyone was hoping for. Everyone mm. was hoping for some kind of sort of tacit progressive alliance between the Liberal Democrats and, and the Labour Party. Also, the truth is, all this, oh, I'm never going to have anything to do with this person, it's all a load of absolute nonsense. Like, I remember in the 2015 general election, we were like, well, we're never even going to, like, even if Nicola Sturgeon, like, bump, even she rings us, I'm not taking the phone call, I'm going to disinfect the, the, the phone, I'm going to burn the phone, we're throwing, getting a new phone. You know, it was just, like, so over the top. Yeah. Um, and we said the same thing about the Liberal Democrats, but, we're, but every single party will have a team of people working on looking at the other person, the other contenders' mm. manifestos, and already working out where could you cut a deal, where could you cut deals, where are the points of, um, you know, principle where you can agree in terms of like where can you do a deal if you need to. I think just the, it, the expectation game, I think, is the main problem there. They knew this, they knew this poll squeeze was coming. They expected it, and I think they should have planned for that better. Uh, just a word on the Brexit Party. Uh, their decision to stand down candidates in Tory seats seems to have proved proven crucial. But could they? still play a key role in Labour leave areas? Could they still play a decisive role in this election? What do you think, Arj? You're the one that's been kind of following them, to be honest. Um, like... No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I have been following them. And, and actually, it's really interesting. Even Farage himself, two weeks ago, was talking about Brexit Party candidates cutting deals with Tories in the Tory target seats that are held by Labour. And it, it just seems the... The, the bottom's fallen out of the entire thing. God, I bet he wish he accepted that peerage that he was uh, rumoured to be off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, on that, it's time for the quiz. Uh, and with polling day fast approaching, this week's quiz is all about the mechanics of the election, which is more interesting than it sounds. <laughs> we'll, we'll decide that for you, I think. <laughs> so only two contestants. It's head-to-head. Oh, I'm uh, really bad at quizzes. You're going to win. It seems to be the format of this election, so appropriate. I just shout the answer and, and yeah, that'll be fine. <laughs> what are the largest and smallest constituencies in terms of area? Oh, area. Oh, I was going to say Isle of Wight, but I think maybe that's not area, that's population. I think somewhere in Scotland. Yeah. Or, or, no, Orkney. Somewhere no. like, the, oh, God, um, not uh, uh, Perth and Ockhill, no. Uh, uh, Orkney and he- Outer Heb- the Hebrides. Um, oh, I don't, oh, no, I have no idea. It's no, definitely a Scottish yeah, one. Yeah, it's... Yeah, the largest is Ross Sky and Lockhart. Which is in Blackford, right? Yes. Yeah. I like that when, oh, like I knew it. I know, exactly. Oh, yeah. I was like, close. <laughs> uh, and what's the smallest? Cities of Westminster? No. Uh, Wells? 
Is that what it's called? No, I don't know then. Ooh. Uh, um, oh, no. It's in London. In London. Um, um, no, it's not like Islington's. It's not. Ah. God, is it? One of the Islington's? Yes. Islington South. Islington North. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't think you've either one of... Either of you have won a point there, sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's fine. Um, <laughs> if, if, if... It's a hum uh, parliament, it's fine. It's like a hum quiz, it's fine. <laughs> if in a, in a, in a, um, in an election, the vote, the result is tied, what happens? Like in a constituency? In a constituency. Straws? Exactly. Yeah, pretty much. They have to uh, actually rest, physically fight. Well, the, <laughs> the returning officer apparently gets to decide how to break the tie. You're choking. Well, it's usually drawing oh. lots or flipping a coin or a something. But, yeah. uh, a sing-off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dance off. Like a drag race style <laughs> mime. <laughs> right, final question. What happens if you turn up to the polling station drunk? Can you still vote? You can be Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I reckon you can. Yes, I know. I know someone that's turned up drunk and they voted. Yes, you can. You can indeed vote. You've both got a point for that. Um, yes, they can't. Polling station staff can't simply refuse a voter because they're drunk or under the influence of drugs. Um, but if the presiding officer suspects you're incapable of voting, you'll be asked a series of questions <laughs> to be determined <laughs> to determine whether you're up to the task of casting your ballot. Uh, and if you can't answer satisfactorily, they'll be told to come back when they've sobered up. Do you know what the questions are? I, I, I don't think there's some. There's any set questions. That's amazing. I think all voters should be subject to that test before they're allowed to go into the voting booth. We'd, we'd have to have like voting month, wouldn't we? <laughs> Literally, which is like we now just have to test. You know things like those like things. Has it got a robot? You know, you get all the squares, and it's like, has <laughs> yeah. this got? You need some sort of test to show your compass mentors. Um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. Be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Before we go, we'll just leave you with Joe Swinson attempting to negotiate with some Extinction Rebellion protesters who were dressed as bees and glued themselves to her bus. I find actually campaigning work a little bit patronising. We're in active rebellion against a government which has failed to act on climate change and the climate breakdown in the face of evidence for 30 years. And we're now being asked to vote into a political system for politicians and political parties that have promised things in elections and then failed afterwards. So we're not campaigning, we're in active rebellion against the government. I'm fine. I, I absolutely, and you know, I, I've been to the extinction of protest myself earlier this year because I think it is a really important cause, and I think it's absolutely true that we are facing a climate emergency. We are in that now, as you say. There is, um, you know, species extinction happening right now. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.